Andy Pithouse, this may not be what you wanted to talk about, but I want to ask you, how does this idea of power and the power held by social workers play itself out when professionals have to uh, share decision-making as they're encouraged to do now? And the social worker may be, we've just heard that the the social worker in the voluntary sector, less powerful than the the social worker working for the local authority. The social worker, less powerful, I don't know, than the doctor or the teacher. How does that play itself out in practice? Well, power is a very complicated notion, and uh, we can only sort of touch on it here, really. But power in social work is clear and objective in some senses, and also very abstract and and tacit and, and almost ambivalent in other senses. And a lot of social work is negotiation. And so if, if you looked at it uh, as a scheme, you could say, well, OK, we've got power at the level of an organisation within the law we have, particularly within our therapeutic skills, our knowledge base, there's power to define there. And you can say that power and social work really resides at the level of assessment, where we as social workers define what the problems are, what we think the solutions might be, ideally with others in partnership. But often a power resides in an interpersonal sense as well, insofar as uh, social workers may withhold knowledge. They may may withhold information as a means of power. They uh, may engage uh, necessarily in all kinds of uh, effective strategies to win the uh, result they want for their particular case. And of course, power also resides with service users. They too may not say everything, tell everything or explain everything. Uh, They have a view of the social worker and they have a view of their own lives. And they're not fools and they will uh, disclose what they wish to disclose. So power operates in all kinds of strange, liquid ways in social work, if you like. And it's never quite clear at any one point in time uh, how it's operating and uh, and I think the skilled social worker is one who can operate at a number of levels and so when they're with GPs and, and teachers o- over whom they have no authority uh, when they're with multi-agencies working to find a solution over whom they have no line management, the social worker's got to be a really skilled organisational operator they're crossing all these boundaries dealing with all these other particular identities and people and egos and, and interests and I think the skilled social worker is one who can actually hear and manage all these different discourses and find solutions within them. And that's quite a a modern identity, quite a modern task, and it's not much well described by national occupational standards, not well described by social work ethical frameworks. Uh, These are real everyday skills which you pick up by experience, and it's experience bumping into theory when new ideas come from, and, uh, and I think that's where power is as well. Susanna, can you give us some ideas of your experience then of the negotiating that you have had to do, I suppose, between individuals, uh, organisations, systems? Yeah, I mean, a a couple of thoughts, really. I I mean, I would entirely agree with Steve that this, that the power that the social worker has is is quite a kind of double-edged sword and it can be used well and it can be abused as well. I personally think that we still have quite a lot of discretionary power, even with the the sort of regulatory framework within which we work and and all the rest of it. I think we can make quite a a difference and our own views of a situation can influence the outcome of of an assessment and what social services is is prepared to provide. Give us an example. I was thinking of a a woman, an an older woman I, I worked with who lived at home and she had really she'd had enough she'd had enough of being at home she was in a lot of pain from arthritis she was just very tired really and she very much wanted to move into a local methodist group home care home where she knew some other people and she herself was a lifelong methodist and and she felt this was where she wanted to be 
But sort of strictly speaking, if you look down the list of kind of criteria of what help somebody needed in order to qualify for social services funding to go into a care home, she was pretty borderline. She managed fairly well at, at home, really, without a huge amount of help. She had a very strong character. And I really felt that if she didn't get this, if she wasn't able to move, she would actually just give up and things would just go completely to pieces and she would be very disappointed and eventually probably in a few months' time she would need a care home place because she would have given up at home. But in a way then I had to argue her case, knowing what the eligibility criteria were, I had to sort of argue her case along those lines, sort of acknowledging that her physical impairments weren't on the surface apparently sufficient to justify this move, but there were other reasons why the move should be funded. And it was accepted, and I think that's the kind of... A use of our of our discretionary power when you you listen to the story that someone's telling you, and you actually kind of try and almost translate it into the bureaucratic language that you know the agency will understand and will accept, but still telling the truth. But still telling the truth, and and still actually, I mean, firmly believing that this was. I mean, I genuinely believed that this was the right, the right solution for this person. I didn't feel I was making anything up. Yes, I just wanted to add to that. Cause I, I, I very much agree with your, your analysis there about the, uh, the skills and negotiating skills of, of an effective social work practitioner in complex organisations. But I also think there's another area of power which we, we shouldn't overlook, and that's the power of social work as a profession, in a sense, to argue its case with, with some effect. And uh, I'm not entirely sure we do that particularly well these days, but uh, I certainly uh, would go back to Wales, where I come from, in the, in the early 1980s, where it was social workers engaging, lobbying civil servants uh, in what was then the Welsh office to really engage forcefully with the deinstitutionalisation uh, idea for learning disabilities. And social workers working with civil servants, working with local politicians, emptied out hospitals and got people into community-based settings because they had a sense of critical practice and theory from normalisation theory. And that was a really good example of the social work profession getting together to support people coming out of the hospital living effectively in, in settings which were relatively well supported at that particular time uh, and it was a success, it really was a landmark success in Wales 25 years ago or more and was seen, people came from Japan, Canada the States to have a look at what we were doing it was good, it was a real good example of the profession leading the way in a sense and arguing the case effectively and I'm not sure we'd have enough power these days within policy networks that we once had and I do think we need to speak again with a, a more assured voice I think I just wanted to add something else to what, to what Andy said because I, I thought it was such an important example, really, of the role of social workers of profession. And there is a constant debate that I feel I have with social work students about what is real social work. And very often social work students, maybe even qualified social workers, come to regard real social work as the time that you spend with an individual who needs a service. Now, of course, that's absolutely vital and absolutely the core of social work practice. But I think we've had a number of examples of areas of work which involve social workers working with other professionals, with other organisations, operating from time to time politically. And all of this is real social work. And social work, in some ways, is defined by its ability to move between different levels. It's a very good example of different types of power. It's also a very good example of the relevance of critical practice as an idea because that idea of critical practice binds together those different levels of intervention 
It justifies why you're intervening in the lives of individuals. It underpins your work with other organisations and acts as the basis for your um, more political activities. Well, I think that's a really good, uh, an upbeat and positive point on which to end the discussion for now. And we're going to pick up some of those threads in the next part of our discussion where we're going to look at the whole question of regulation and the setting of standards. Thank you.